0: My name is Sherry. Thank you all for coming. Um, I would be glad to interact with you or give you my email if you'd like. I had it on my presentation yesterday. I see I forgot, but uh, if you want to contact me, uh, it's really just Sherry, S-H-A-R-I dot Falkenheimer at cmda.org, or I can give you my card. I want to talk uh, today, there's so many things we could talk about. We could have a whole course on cross-cultural issues on teaching health care, teaching in health care. Uh, but we'll only be able to cover a couple of things. The main emphasis will be on issues related to translators and interpreters. And then only time really for one example of local health beliefs and how they can impact the care of patients. Uh, how many of you have been missionaries overseas long term? Good, so maybe you can add some. Think about health beliefs you know from your culture that you might be able to share because we all have very different experiences. And I think uh, the example I'm going to tell you was uh, very interesting to me. I uh, didn't really realize how different worldviews could be sometimes, and I think that will be useful. Uh, How many of you have taught through translators or interpreters? Oh, great. Okay. Well, I'd like to do this interactively. It's very boring to get lectured at. So, what are some issues? Uh, well, actually, I'm going to do it in three parts. Uh, sorry, got off track there. Uh, of course, there are many situations like these uh, needing interpreters. The one I'm mostly involved in is uh, teaching teams, where we uh, are teaching medicine, dentistry, medical ethics, faculty development. But most of you, even in the U.S. I know there's an increasing number of people whose first language is other than ours, and uh, I think it's been quite an improvement since they've had these translation lines where you can call a native speaker and the doctor can be on one side and the patient on the other, uh, and uh, it has improved uh, communication a lot. But overseas, you don't always have control of who your translators will be. And also at international conferences, they just pick someone, so they may have more or less medical knowledge. So what is the problem? Uh, this is, uh, I think, pretty obvious to most of us, but even when we speak the same language, we can misinterpret and misunderstand each other. I was with some missionary friends in the outback in Australia one time, and uh, they said, want to have a cuppa? It's like, cuppa? What's a cuppa? You know, or... <laughs> A cup of tea, they meant. Probably a lot of you know that, and you've probably had similar. What are some other things you've heard in in cultures that were in English, but you're kind of confused about what they're talking about? Yes. The comment was that in Kenya, he was asking for a pitcher of water at a restaurant, and they couldn't quite make that out, and they thought he was asking for a picture of water. Any other kind of com- comedy ones? I, I was called to the emergency room
1: in Honduras for
0: a patient who had passed away, but it actually was that passed out. Oh, okay, in Honduras, someone was called uh, to see a patient who passed away, but the patient had only passed out. That reminds me of, you know, international students here. I, I have been involved with a lot of my life, and we say we kick the bucket. And they're like, I kick the bucket? You know, or, uh, we forget sometimes even getting hamburgers when they say, for here to go. A lot of people don't really get that. So I think uh, it's clear that even the same language can be a problem. But when you're from a totally different language and culture, you're really uh, likely to have some problems and issues that come up. And the other thing I'm sure you're all aware of is that uh, although translators, if you know the other language well, most people can translate your slides for you. Not always if they don't know medical terms, but uh, doing interpretation is a different thing. And I think that's one of the real advantages of these translation lines. Historically, often children uh, who were here in New English well would be asked to translate for their parents. And you can imagine if you're there for a, you know, a vaginal discharge or something like that, to try to communicate that through your child. And uh, also, if you use neighbors and things, it can be a real sensitive thing. But you don't always uh, get an accurate translation either. And I thought this was another good one about being lost in translation, that uh, if we speak little or none of the language of the uh, person – We can't really tell which ideas are clear. So we're going to talk a little bit about some things that can help you know whether the translation is communicating what you want, because certainly in our field, mistranslation can cause death and hurt our patients. So don't want to do that. And then uh, benefits. There have been studies on this, and it really uh, improves... The care of patients to have good interpreters really kind of putting them on the equivalent of the level of uh, people that you can talk to directly. Where in the past, without this, there are a lot more errors. So there is, this is sort of evidence-based as well. Okay, now this is what I had started to ask you. What are some tips you would give somebody about preparing a presentation to be given in another language and culture through an interpreter? It's okay for me. Do you all want to you want lights so you to take notes? Or? And can do it this way. Okay, thanks. If you're not taking notes or anything. Use short good. Use short sentences. And remember to stop talking. Remember to, stop, to stop talking. Like yes. Have you ever been somewhere where somebody <laughs> did like a whole paragraph and the interpreter is like, oh no. Yeah, short sentences. I wasn't giving a good example in my last couple slides. They weren't too short, but Hopefully we're all English speakers. Yeah.
1: I think being creative in how to bring the wording forth if it's not understood in the way that it's brought forth, if it's not the same wording. Yeah, being
0: uh, creative if there seems to be misunderstanding, restating it in a different terminology, trying to explain a little better. Anything else? Yes. Taking
2: the time before
1: your are talk to, talk to your interpreter about kind of where you're going.
0: Yeah, it's very important try to go over it with your interpreter, at least give them the big picture, see if they can repeat it back to you, and, and provide correction. And,
3: and also, if they, can, uh, if they have words for what you're trying to say, for example, my wife and-
0: Yeah, being sure that there's a word in that language, like empathy, in uh, in one other culture there was no real word for, it. and there are sometimes no direct translations. So they may have to, you may have to explain it to the interpreter, and they can make a phrase out of it. What else? Anything else? Okay, I won't belabor that, but feel free to chime in. Um, if you're going to use, sometimes we use slides in English where people know a lot of English because they read a lot but don't speak it. But a lot of cultures, you can have them translated in advance, but you need to plan for that because they usually you can't give it to them the night before and expect a good translation. So try to get them translated if possible. We talked about meeting with the interpreter. And uh, check your slides and be sure they're readable on the equipment. I've often found things look great on my computer, but when I projected, it, it's a whole different story. Talked about simple sentences. You want to use clear terminology. And if you can use visual aids like photos and diagrams and things, that can also help a lot if they only get part of it to kind of connect the dots and get the whole picture. If you're in another country, you don't want to say, oh, that was a home run for us. You know, you want to avoid things that are very culture-specific, uh, football terms, tr- sports terms are often used, for example. Uh, you want to try to make it in as plain English as possible, not to, not to insult the people, but just for clarity. And uh, in medicine, we have a lot of acronyms. Uh, you can't always assume that people know all of our acronyms. And, you know, having spent 26 years in the military, I think we were kind of the kings and queens of acronyms. So, be sure that you spell it out at least the first time, then you, you might be able to use it later. Uh, one of my pet peeves in med school was these slides that had like about thirty lines and really tiny prints so like a lot of these are true in any presentation, but try to be sure that you don 't make so many uh, things on one slide that that can 't be seen. How about giving a presentation? What are some things you would uh, you would uh, suggest doing? We talked about uh, speaking one sentence or phrase and letting the interpreter interpret it. Don't speak a whole paragraph. What else? You should know what units they're using if you're giving lab values. Yes, very important. If you're giving lab values, uh, be sure you know what units. Most countries use the metric system, uh, but be sure you know, and also what they're capable of doing. Anything else? Yes?
3: When you answer questions, in your own language and make sure that you understand the question
0: you're being asked good so you're getting interpreted to this time by the interpreter so when you're asked a question uh, repeat it back and be sure you're answering the question they're asking
1: yes I would ask questions during the presentation to see how much they're really retaining and what they're understanding that they have any the questions
0: okay so check understanding by using questions during the presentation any other ideas Using case studies that translate well. Not again. You've got to get it to them early so they can tell you whether this is something that is reasonable or not. Any other suggestions? Yes. If you're
3: giving a technical presentation, it's key that the interpreter understands the terminology that you're using, and so be medical in background, so you really need to make sure, like, if you're talking about
0: histoplasmosis, they, they know what you're talking about. Right. Be sure the translator understands the terminology, especially the medical terminology. I, I had this, uh, this uh, similar opportunity where I, I was provided a Russian translator in, uh, in Central Asia, and... Uh, The person was a Russian translator but didn't know anything about medical. And I was trying to speak at this conference, and the interpreter would get to a point and just stop, you know, and kind of look perplexed, and the audience would yell out the medical term because they kind of got that. A lot of our terms are international, but it's definitely not uh, optimal. I call it tag-team translation. (laughs) Any other ones? Be sure you look at the audience. Uh, you probably know this in clinical care, but a lot of times in, uh, in patient care when there was a translator, the person will look at the interpreter rather than at the patient. That's very insulting and doesn't communicate care. And similarly, you don't want to keep – you might need to look once in a while if they stop or they might be perplexed. But be sure you're looking at the audience rather than the interpreter. You talk about encouraging questions or, or asking your own questions. Uh, speaking slowly and clearly – I tend to talk fairly rapidly, and in other countries, or if I'm working with international students, I try to consciously slow down. And then uh, we talked about not going on too far without letting the, tra- the interpreter. Uh, explaining important terms, avoiding complex grammar. We tend to write a lot different than we speak and use a lot of phrases, and that can be very confusing uh, we already talked about the fourth one, uh, promoting active engagement with the topics, feedback, whether they're understanding. And then uh, this bottom one is kind of a cultural thing, alternating theoretical and abstract com- concepts uh, and giving practical, concrete examples. Uh, in many cultures in the West, we particularly start with the theoretical and then go to uh, the the practical or the example. There are a lot of cultures that do it the other way around. They start with the, the example and then go back to the theoretical. And going back and forth, uh, also people are sometimes better at theoretical or practical. So this can be even good in our, our culture, but uh, Dr. Jim uh, Pluderman has has uh, done a lot of talking on this. He has a book Cross-Cultural Leadership that talks a lot about this if you're interested Uh, Then giving the presentation, you want to repeat and reinforce. We talked about that. And then uh, use demonstration or interactive methods as far as possible so you know whether they're understanding. Okay, how about assessing your presentation in another culture? Any thoughts on suggestions for that? Or any problems you think could occur? Yes? Okay, body language. Right, body language that, uh, you know, sometimes you think they're not interested or paying attention but because of their body language, but that's how they do it in their culture. And the opposite, I heard a, a pastor from Kenya who was saying, you know, when teams come to teach in their country, uh, he sees the prayer letters when people come home, and they'll be like, oh, the Kenyans, they were the most interested students. They're on the edge of their seat every time. They paid such attention. They were just glued to what I was saying. And then he would hear them later saying, Did you understand anything what they were talking about? I didn't get anything out of that. But they're taught to be polite, look interested. So you can't uh, always assess their body language. Any other uh, assessment issues or tips? Yes.
3: I think it's important to to know what the custom is to uh, having a teacher. Because sometimes you ask a question... And nobody answers. And their their custom is that they don't they don't talk, they don't respond to questions.
0: Yeah, a lot they're, of the they world can
3: really put a speaker off if they're used to the interactive thing, and nobody will answer or say anything.
0: Right, we're used to doing interactive methods, and certainly if you have formal training in education or do a lot of reading. There's a lot of evidence that people learn a lot more from methods other than lecture. But a lot of countries are still in lecture mode. And also there's what, what you call high power distance between the, the faculty and the students. That's an issue for our teams. We often can't get to the students because students and faculty don't interact. It is changing in a lot of parts of the world, a lot of places, doing lecture. Uh, are trying to incorporate more interactive methods, but it can be important to know kind of what 's expected and maybe even talk to them ahead of time about is it okay to to try this? I do find younger people all over the world lo- love it you know I, even in cultures where they don 't usually interact with professors most places they 're responsive if you give them permission and you act friendly you know you 're not going to there are sayings in like in Asia that The nail that sticks up will get hammered down and things like that. So a lot of times they're taught not to stick out, not to be different than the class, too. So, Any other cultural things on assessment? Good. We should write a book together. Uh, I think we already talked about observing the nonverbal behavior. You can't always interpret it, but, you know, if it looks like nobody's following what you're saying, can give you some indication or if it looks like they're all whispering to each other looking perplexed. nothing's perfect if you can't uh, understand what's actually going on, but uh, we talked about demonstration performance if you tell them how to do it and they can show you they can do it, you know they got it if uh, you can also identify missteps. Uh, sometimes I've you know said like a sentence, and the interpreter said uh, you know like three minutes or something and you have to wonder what's going on there. You know, I I heard uh, one time somebody told a joke at the beginning of their presentation. That's another thing. Humor is very different in different cultures, and uh, it's probably best not even to use jokes. And you also have to watch your hands. It's in a lot of cultures, you know, uh, victory or you know, thumbs up are very bad things. Uh, so it's better to try try to keep your hands relatively still. But uh, I heard one uh, one guy who was speaking in another culture, I think it was in Japan, told a joke, and the interpreter went on for a while, and uh, he found out later the interpreter was saying, well, I think he said blah, 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 and I think it was a joke, but I'm not really sure I understand it, so everybody laughed, and so they all laugh, you know, because <laughs> they have to be polite to their, their visitor. <laughs> I thought that was a really good one. Uh, you can try pre- and post-tests of knowledge if... Uh, some places, that, like I said, if they can do written tests in English, they may not be able to speak, but they read the literature and things. And then asking for feedback. Any? Um, well, we have the issue with feedback. Do you ever give the professor feedback? That's one thing. Uh, a lot of cultures, you don't give negative uh, feedback to people who are your perceived bosses or superiors. And also, a lot of cultures, it's... Uh, considered impolite to give any indication that the professor or your your, uh, guest needed to correct something or did something wrong or you didn't understand it. So it can be very hard. What might you do in those situations to try to be sure uh, you're getting a good check on how it really went?
2: So again, you're not saying what was bad, because they might not respond,
0: but saying, or what, what would you have, like, a better explanation of? Okay, great. Yeah, getting, uh, asking positive questions to see what seemed to go well. or There's a method actually called appreciative inquiry, which works well in these cultures, and it's based on not forcing them to say negative things. Another thing that's often helpful is talking with the interpreter or your host uh, often, especially if you talk to uh, your peer host, it may be a little easier to get direct feedback. And the longer you're there, you know, in one culture we've been going for quite a few years, initially they were a little reluctant to give direct feedback. But as they get to know you, that you're safe, that you're really trying to meet their needs, they're better. And one uh, that's pretty obvious is if you're trying to establish a partnership and they don't, invite you back. So, you know, something probably happened there. Oops. So just to summarize the part on translators and interpreters, uh, we have to do it a lot of times. It's good to avoid it where you can. Uh, if you have a long-term missionary who's, or a local person who's bilingual and bicultural, that's optimal. But some of these simple steps can uh, improve the communication. Uh, it's great if they know medical terminology, Sometimes hard to get medical people out of their clinical duties to interpret for you, though, and uh, try to assess the audience understanding. Okay, now we want to talk about local health beliefs in the patient. A couple of you said you had uh, been long-term somewhere else. What would be uh, – I don't know how we can do this with the microphones. You can just talk close to me. What, what's an example of a local health belief where you were?
1: Um, in all regards to medical? Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't have
0: to be, but preferably –
1: I would say the use of contraceptives. It's being pushed by the health centers, and being, it's, it's come against by the local churches. And so it's a really big um, problem, and people are trying to focus on family planning. How can you really focus on how many children to have in your family um, in a healthy aspect? And then it, it's kind of being come against of... Well, we need, yeah, anyway, there's a lot of stuff there. Okay, issues,
0: especially spiritually, uh, where your church is, you know, saying God values children and uh, that kind of thing, and outside agencies are trying to cause you to limit your family. Did you have a, could you come up here? They're taping it, so I want to be sure it gets on the tape.
2: Um, I lived in Estonia in Eastern Europe, but not as a medical missionary, we were there as um, working with young people, but... um, I worked with a, a lady in my neighborhood who was 80 years old and had a lot of had grown had lived through the Soviet times, and um, so had a lot of natural remedies that she had from her garden. So anytime I say, "Oh, my child has a runny nose," she'd run and she'd go get me a little bunch of little herbs and and you know different things. And one of the things was vodka socks that she said if your child has a fever, you have to put. Dip your wool socks in vodka because they had a lot of vodka. Because every person got one bottle of vodka every month. That was the ration. You wouldn't have enough soap. You wouldn't have enough food, but you'd have enough vodka. And um, so she would get. She that was one of the ways that they used because they didn't have Tylenol. And they didn't have all of the different medications, but they would use vodka to help relieve fever.
0: Thank you. Yeah, a lot of countries have uh, herbal remedies, and it's really growing here. You know, you see that ones without evidence and that kind of thing. Vodka socks—that's new—and I—I th- thought you were gonna say they uh, socked back, you know, a few vodkas, <laughs> drank them. But yeah, that is true. And uh, I was uh, helping in a in a mission hospital one time, and fortunately, the pediatrician I was stepping in for for a while explained to me about you will frequently frequently see children with poisoning due to these local herbal remedies. And I wouldn't have known that was the source. You know, here you call the Poison Control Center. and So it's good to know those kinds of things. Any other examples you'd like to share? Yes.
3: Working among the Highland Indians in Ecuador... Uh, they're very holistic in their worldview. And if you tell someone they have a chronic illness like tuberculosis, they would say, No, I'm a man. I have a job. I support. I only have one wife. I support my family. I can't have a chronic illness. And so they'll take your bag of medicines and hang it in the rafters and not treat their tuberculosis.
0: Okay. Good example. Thank you. And that's uh, certainly a disease that needs treatment. <laughs>
1: There's one more I heard in Asia where the women, when they're pregnant, they want to eat just a little amount of food because they're told that if they have smaller babies that it'll be easier during delivery time and less complications. And so then babies are coming out, a lot of malnutrition, a lot of issues from that.
0: So it can have a lot of negative things. Of course, there are some herbal things that are effective, but... uh I guess, you know, I've always heard about animism and that sort of thing, and I thought I had some understanding of it until I read this book, uh, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. Have any of you ever read that? Yes. Good. Uh, that really clued me into how different worldviews can be. And uh, here's a couple definitions, you know, the way someone thinks about the world or the filter through which we perceive reality. Uh, I think sometimes it's hard for us when we hear that term to realize how different worldviews can be, the depth of the differences. And this is a book I'd really recommend if you haven't read it. Uh, It's very good. It happened in North America. So wherever you see people from other cultures, it might be helpful. And uh, I'm going to use that as an example. There are many others, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who have been long-term overseas who could give you many other things. There are a lot of other issues, though, I wish we had time to talk about truth telling in many cultures especially in in asia and uh, some parts of african things you don't tell someone they're dying for example because it takes away their hope and you know so there's issues about that uh, there's issues about how individualistic and uh community oriented we are and uh how high people are seen like the chief in the society versus others and what can be communicated to each there's the issue of uh, egalitarian societies versus hierarchical, which is related to power distance. Uh, informed consent can be different in communal cultures and individualistic cultures. But I just want to, I think that what would be most helpful is just to talk about this one uh, baby and about uh, the effect of folk beliefs. So this is a case study on Leah Lee. She's an eight-month-old Hmong female. Anybody know what Hmong Hmongs are? Somebody looked at me really perplexed the other day when I said that. Like, a Hmong? What's a Hmong?
1: Okay,
0: they're from Southeast Asia. They're a Southeast Asia people group. Uh, Those of us who are old enough to remember the Vietnam War, heard about them, but uh, for younger people, you probably haven't, but after the war, quite a number came to the U.S. Uh, So it's an eight-month-old young baby from a Hmong culture. Two to three days of intermittent fever and cough. Patient, uh, was shaking and not breathing well for 20 minutes before her parents brought her in. She's had a number of similar episodes, but in previous uh, times to come to the hospital or see the doctor, they weren't able to explain because of the, uh, the language barrier. What do you think this might be a case of? I shouldn't have put that at the bottom. I try to uh, not be plagiaristic, though. Okay, that's, that's the Hmong diagnosis. What would your diagnosis be as a North American if you are a North American? or Febrile seizure. Okay. Any others? Here's her physical. She's unresponsive to verbal or physical or painful stimuli. Her head's to the left. She's having tonic-clonic movements like like this, of her upper extremities, grunting, respirations. Any, any additional diagnoses? Status okay, status epilepticus?
1: Uh, Is going not. the spiritual side of like demon possession? It could be demon possession if you believe some in people that. Believe,
0: yeah, some
1: people
0: right. Say that okay. So we talked about what's the diagnosis. What causes epilepsy? How many of you are physicians or nurses? Okay, come on. What causes epilepsy? Pardon me? Okay, irregular brain activity caused by? Okay, it can be meningitis and encephalitis. some febrile child sorry, previous, previous head injury, brain malformation. brain malformation. Okay, so there are a lot of possibilities. Metabolic problems. Metabolic problems. This is the doctor's diagnosis, grand mal seizure with aspiration pneumonia. Probably got a chest X-ray. Explain uh, the cause of epilepsy is uh, brain activity going kind of awry, an electrochemical storm inside the head which had been stirred up by the misfiring of aberrant brain cells in the book. Uh, and it has a natural cause, just like every other disease, right? This is her parents' view. She has the illness that causes uh, the illness where the spirit catches you and you fall down. It's because she lost her soul. Even though they had installed her soul carefully during the plig ceremony, a soul-stealing dab, or spirit, caused it. A twix neeb or shaman, shaman is need, needed to come and perform a ceremony and do an animal sacrifice to retrieve the soul. Do you see any issue here between the family members and their culture and uh, the they diagnosis? They may not have a nearby shaman. They may not, although... Uh, this group, there was quite a group that emigrated to that area, but that could be, actually, at one point they did actually take her several hundred miles for, uh, I don't know, super shaman or something, uh, when the local one wasn't working. But here, the diagnosis is totally different, and so is the treatment. So how are you gonna handle this? Which is the right diagnosis? Okay, depends on who you are to some extent. Recruit help from the shaman. Okay, some people would recruit help from the shaman and try to uh, incorporate. There's a movement in quite a few places to incorporate the local healers or shamans into the health system and uh, have them participate. There are a lot of groups that are uncomfortable with that because of the spiritual aspects of what the shaman's involved with. This is a statement made uh, by the author uh, about the uh, discussion with the doctors and uh, the people she knows. Most real-life doctors seem myopically over-reliant on the culture of biomedicine. I think a lot of you are clued in a little more. But they say, diseases aren't caused by spirits. Why should I indulge in delusions? What did Jesus say? (laughs) Well, what's the Bible say? There certainly were examples, like in Mark 9. 17 and following, where there was a spirit that seized him. He fell down and uh, ground his teeth, foamed at the mouth, uh, stiffens, and he healed him by delivering him, by uh, casting out the demon. So we don't really know which is the correct diagnosis. Maybe they're closer to the real thing. And the other thing is healers or shamans often are much more, uh, I guess you say, Hippocratic in some ways with patients than than doctors in North America. Their shamans don't make you come in. You know, the, the uh, Hmong tended to avoid doctors because no matter how sick you were, they made you come to them instead of coming to you where the shaman just would come to your home. And then when you got there, they'd only spend like 10 or 20 minutes with you where the shaman might stay all day, you know, talk to you, talk to the patient. They were always polite they didn't have to ask questions. They knew it was wrong, where the doctors ask really rude and intimate questions. They might ask you about sexual things or, you know, vaginal discharges, and and they might be very abrupt with you. The shamans can just immediately make a diagnosis where the doctors want to take all your blood out and uh, do all these other mysterious things, CAT scans or uh, physical exams, the shamans don't make you undress and get embarrassed, but the doctors make you take your clothes off and examine your intimate areas. And the uh, shamans consider your body and your soul, where the doctors are just uh, thinking about biomedical. So I think you can see uh, a huge disconnect there. And hopefully a lot of you are much more compassionate doctors than some of their perceptions. But it's a, it's a major Issue. It's not always just a financial issue that causes them to go to, sh- or a cultural issue that causes them to, go to seek shaman- shamans. When
3: sometimes even us being compassionate can be viewed by them as uncompassionate just because of the cultural uh, discongruity.
0: Okay, the way we're, we see being compassionate may not be interpreted as compassion depending on cultural uh, body language, uh, behaviors, and that sort of thing. These are some of their other beliefs among the Hmong people. Uh, they get really upset because when you go to the hospital or the doctor, they cut your spirit strings off your wrists because they think they're dirty and uh, they're taking them off and you're losing your protection against the spirits, which they all know are there. Uh, and we know they're there, too, somewhere, not necessarily in each individual. But I think if if we're all Christians, we can't deny there are demons. Uh And they believe that all the people who died in the hospital, their spirits are inhabiting the hospital and seeking to suck up more spirits to their group. So they're afraid to go there because of these spirits. Uh, They have all these herbal remedies, which may cause uh, medical symptoms we might not expect. They use cupping where uh, they kind of light a little cotton and put it under a glass cup to uh, suck up. kind of causes a suction or a little burn. Uh, and they think that's sucking out the spirits or various other dermal type things they do to release the spirit or the disease. And uh, they think epidemics are because they disturb the spirits, not uh, because of bacteria and things like that. So it's just a tremendous uh, divergence of worldviews. And I think the Bible uh, teaches us quite differently than we're taught in our healthcare uh, professional education. You know, we can't divide people just into their physical part and just treat physical diseases. We're unified, and there are spiritual diseases, not only not knowing the Lord, but people still are demon-possessed. How many of you have been places where you've seen demon-possessed people? Yeah, so we've got quite a few in this room you can talk to who have seen demon-possessed. I think sometimes we don't even recognize them here because Americans just don't think about it for the most part. And that people have complex needs. Uh, This... One social worker that was involved I was very impressed with because she spent a lot of time with them and tried to understand how were they perceiving things? Why were they not giving the medicine? And uh, it's actually a very sad story. The, the child doesn't do well. The family, uh, there's some things that are done to protect the child that disrupt the family. And uh, we know God can treat the entire person. So, And he can also clue us into what we don't know. So God, of course, is the source of all healing physical and spiritual, as well as uh, the other parts of life, interpersonal and cosmic. So basically, we talked about translators and interpreters, and one example of very divergent health beliefs that can affect care. And uh, we all need to remember the motto at Tenwick that uh, we treat, God heals. Any other comments, questions, discussion? Feel free, especially if you have experienced some of these things. Yes. Yeah, that was a a comment that uh, the view of death in a lot of cultures is different, that many places don't want us to do our persistence of using more and more technology and just prolonging the inevitable. I think uh, there's some movements in the world and even in the western world that are helping in that, especially providing good hospice and palliative care. Uh, The Bible says there is a time to die. You know, is it, I've often thought as a Christian, Would I be willing to have, like, a liver or kidney transplant or something that costs half a million dollars in the health system when that could do a lot of good for others? What would I be preventing, you know? I think everybody has to make a personal decision if you have young children or whatever, but uh, I think there's some things that probably it's hard to justify uh, as far as loving your neighbor and things just because of the huge cost for a very short benefit in many cases. Yes?
3: they say they're Christian doesn't mean that they share your worldview
0: of disease. Good point. Just because someone comes to be a, a believer from another culture, they may not immediately share your worldview of disease. And you've probably all been in places where there's a lot of syncretism. People come, they keep their old spiritual beliefs a lot of times, their old spiritual practices. am trying to think where I read very recently. uh was talking about a, a guy who was... Uh, becoming trained, I think, as a pastor who had become a believer. And and the uh, missionary pastor was saying to him, you don't do those things anymore, do you? And he said, well, only when this happens. And he saw that the, the pastor was kind of alarmed. And he said, oh, no, not me. It's just blah, 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 blah. These people do. You know, so a lot of times even people who may be getting trained spiritually, you need to address those things as well. And, you know, If you didn't become a Christian as a young child, which I didn't, there are a lot of things I needed to grow out of habits and uh, experiences, and uh, there's probably a whole bunch of them God still needs to work on. So we're all in progress, and just because you see somebody who's a Christian in another culture doesn't mean that they don't have some of these issues. Great. Well, I need to let you go. Thanks very much. I'll be around if you want to talk.